then when you hear the presses running, you think, oh, look at that. It feels like the world's, world's all moving about and you've been part of that. You've been part of making that work. And someone somewhere's gonna read what you've done. They won't know you've done it, but you've done it. You've been part of something bigger than yourself. Do you know what I mean? I mean, going to work at night was like going to a party every night. It was very enjoyable. And the comradeship was out of this world. Comradeship in Fleet Street was uh, unbelievable. and welcome to the Digital Works Oral History Podcast. This series is called Fleet Street Remembered, an oral history of London's print workers. London primary school children interviewed print workers to document what life was like for printers, finishers, journalists and readers in the heyday of newspaper production in Fleet Street. Episode 2 explores the sights, sounds and smells of working on a production line and what a typical day required to successfully publish a newspaper at the height of Fleet Street's powers. At the Telegraph, linotype or hot metal machines built in the 1930s were used to assemble the blocks of print. This was newspaper printing until the mid-1980s. A process belonging to the past now, rendered antique by technological revolution. I don't know as if there was a typical day because so much always happened. It was one of those industries where it was there was something happening all the time, whether it be uh, the intensity of work, um, bearing in mind in the newspaper trade there were deadlines for the paper to go to bed. So um, you had to meet the deadlines. A typical day, well, I always remember that uh, it was very exciting uh, because remember you were trying to get a newspaper out for the next day and you had trains and planes to catch. So it really was a race up until the, the time that all the pages were done. So for that first edition, it was, it was really good and fast and tough. So I would start work at half five, lay out the pages which were in big chases, on trolleys, full page size. The Guardian wasn't a tabloid then, it was a big, uh, it, it was a big paper, a broadsheet. I would lay out the pages, put the adverts in position, which were blocks, Zinco blocks and half tones, uh, and then hang around correcting galleys of type, which was all linotype or intertype. And then we would hang around, and that was called slugging, correcting galleys of type, taking out lines that had mistakes in and was called slugging. It was fairly boring, and it had to be done right, if you know what I mean. The Guardian had earned a reputation of uh, having lots of literals, in other words, spelling mistakes. Uh, the next stage would be the copy for the pages would come down, along with a journalist for each page, who was called a stone sub. Then a compositor, or time hand as we were called, would be assigned to each page. In other words, you might go on a sports page, city, front or back. Generally speaking, features pages like the, uh, 
the, the uh, arts pages, they would go first. So we'd get those out of the way, sports pages, there would be three or four of those. The one containing all the late uh, results would go last. That would be quite late in the day. We would be assigned a page. The compositor would stand at the top of the page against the strap at the top with the main headline and he would work down the page. The sub-editor would stand at the bottom of the page with a great big hand of galley proofs and he would cut the stories in. I would make up the story according to depth and, I would, depth and I would say to him, I need six lines cut. He would look at the galley proof and he would say, lose that last paragraph. Or he might say, take this word off here and do this. And that was that. And the story would fit. The page would then be tightened into a spring-loaded chase, wheeled on a trolley to a man who would proof it on a press. And it would then go to the reader and the the sub on the page, who was, who was called the stone sub, would have a proof of his own. They would check that, and according to how late the page was, uh, the head printer would be hovering in the background, and sometimes, if it was a bit late, he would just send the page through anyway before last-minute corrections had been done. And there was always friction between the head sub-editor and the head printer over this. In other words, uh, sometimes the story would just trail off halfway and you were left wondering who won the football match or whatever. And uh, it was always a bit of friction during the days of hot metal, but it was always corrected later in the evening on another edition. Because bearing in mind, with a newspaper, everything was based on time because you had to get the story in a newspaper then it had to be set by the compositors, sent away to have a big plaster cast made, which they used to call a flong, which used to go to the printing presses. Then the printing presses had to print the newspaper. Now, bearing in mind, all this was time critical, because you couldn't get the newspapers in different parts of the country, and you relied on the trains. So you used to do the early edition, they had three editions, early edition, a middle edition and a late edition, and the late edition only went to London because they couldn't get the paper distributed. You come in in the afternoon and you would start framing up. You'd get your page given to you, what you're going to do on your layout. You'd frame the page up. You'd receive pictures um, from the, come via the foundry, that you put in, adverts were in, and all you had was rules and things to the right shape and depth waiting for the text. The satisfaction was where you'd have a, just an empty frame with nothing in it and bit by bit as the evening went on all different parts came and you just assembled it. It was like playing Lego really and then bit by bit you just built it up um, and then the, uh, the editor would come down and he, all the stories would be much too long. They print, uh, they manufacture too many lines so it would have to be what they called cut They'd have to, he would have the proofs of, the, uh, of the, the story and he'd say, oh, well, take the last two paragraphs off the bottom or take this bit out of here and make it fit. And when it was all OK, it would go through to the, um, the foundry and they would make uh, a mould of it. Um, and you probably do about four or five pages in an evening. And then... Uh, 
at the end of the day you had a, a page and you could look at it and you say that was my page I did that when you saw it in the paper the next day now what happens in a newspaper is that the first edition that was going out was going to Scotland or it might even be going across the island um, so they didn't want to read the stories that we read down here so all the stuff representing Scotland was taken out it might be the big stuff, big headlines about Scotland, but the big headlines for London, at the other extreme, are different. So you find that your Scottish headlines were there and your London information was down there. I'll give you the smell straight away. It's a wonderful smell to go down into that, that machine room. You go downstairs into the dungeon, like, and it's all the spirits and the inks. It's a wonderful smell. The smell of the paper was beautiful as well, in the white paper department. The smell of hot lead, hot metal. As you walk in, you could smell the hot metal because all the machines we used to work used to cast lead to make the newspaper and make the print up. And so there was all the little lead pots. You had a big glue pot there, and glue was in like lumps, big lumps which you dropped in, and it melted the glue, and you could smell the glue all over the building, nearly. Well, where I worked um, in, uh, in the Times um, was in the library, and there weren't very many smells, um, except of feet sometimes. <laughs> um, one of the chaps didn't wash his socks very often, I don't think. The sound, the sound was a little bit uh, unnerving. You had the roar of the press all the time. Vroom, vroom, vroom. And it was noisy. And all, all the print men used to wear the big, the big earphones. But uh, we wasn't actually in there, but the, the noise used to come up. We had all holes that the newspapers come up through on forks. And the noise used to come up through the hole as well. Plus the heat and the dust. The noise was absolutely horrendous. It was just like standing next to a runway, having a jet plane take off all night for eight hours. Um, so yeah, it was a very, very busy, loud, chattery with everybody shouting over the top of the noise as well. Hence everybody's death in the printing industry because nobody ever wore any air defenders. But in, in the Observer I was working, the paper used to come up through the floor. When it was running, his presses were just like bigger than this room. And you'd feel the floor vibrating with the paper coming through. And everyone was, well, most of the old printers were deaf, you know, because you didn't have the ear defenders then. Because I came in into the front of the building one day, in, into the lift, and they had priority. So the lift went down instead of up to my floor. And they were in full flow in the machine room. And as the doors opened, the sound and vibrations threw me to the back of the lift. I hadn't braced myself. I hadn't noticed the others were all bracing themselves. And you just didn't think sound and vibration could do that. During my period up in Fleet Street, there was a mining dispute. And a group of miners from Stoke-on-Trent came down. And we took them down into the sun machine room. Now mining conditions were never good, they were appalling. 
and they turned round to us and said, how on earth can you work in these noisy, filthy conditions? It's dirty, because until someone works out a way to print without ink, it's a dirty job. So you're getting ink on yourself all the time. Uh, you know, so there's certain dangers with that, because ink's corrosive. So, for example, when we started work, I should have told you this, the first thing you do is put some barrier cream on your hands, which is a health and safety protection to stop the ink and other, like white spirit and other stuff you use, from affecting your skin. You'd be really bunged up with what they called ink fly. That is when the rollers start to spin, and you've got to remember a lot of the units were open. The only areas that were covered were the plate cylinders. There'd be ink spraying, fine particles of ink spraying in the air. And you'd be breathing this in all night. So when you blew your nose when you went home, the mucus would be absolutely black. And of course, there's a lot of dust and paper fly about. As paper gets cut, there's paper fly and ink fly about. So it's not a pleasant environment. Particularly when I first started work, all down the arms, yes. Because, you, uh, you know, until you learn how to properly handle paper, yeah, you do get paper cuts. And they're painful. The newspaper printing plate was made of lead. And it had three um, different sorts of metal. It's a trimetallic plate, lead, zinc and antimony. And what they found was if you continually reuse the lead, it became weak. And quite often we found that during the night, the plates would break up. And they'd break up like a hand grenade going off. So working in the press hall was quite dangerous. The final product, 52 pounds of lead, or one page of the Daily Telegraph, all ready to heave onto the presses. A 40-page paper consisted of 80 of these plates per press, and there were 14 presses, or 1,120 plates before edition changes. No wonder the printers grumbled. Sunday and Monday, I used to be like a zombie. You know, you, you was tired. You, you'd work from Saturday from four o'clock, right round till about eight o'clock on the Sunday morning before you got to bed. I, I don't sleep very well now, I'm a bad sleeper, and that's only because I used to work night times. But you, you'd get paid more for working nights, so it was worth doing. You never saw a fat compositor on a newspaper. They were always moving about very fast, um, perspiring in the heat. Working to the clock is not easy, especially if people are being irritable. And generally speaking, the pressure got to people at times. You try to keep the pressure off the people you see at the pressure point and you'd help, you try and help, because it didn't always happen. So we used to get some rather large arguments going on from time to time. I think it was the repetition. It was boring. A lot of it was the same thing over and over. And therefore, you, I think that's why I, I and a lot of us got so interested in the union. 
The old presses were beautiful. Rolls Royces of the industry. And like some Rolls Royces, they at last became antiquated. They were built in 1928, at a time before television and talking pictures and transistors had taken away their monopoly. They were the slender link between world news and the British population. They kept rolling even when the Luftwaffe kept bombing. These temperamental old machines at the Telegraph turned out over a million copies a night, and they were deafening as they roared and clattered out the latest sensations. It was manual, you were on your feet all day long. Uh, it was dirty, uh, and it creates a different atmosphere from someone sitting in a, a collar and tie um, at a desk. Uh, you were mingling and working with people side by side rather than one desk being here and one desk over there. So it had a, a completely different atmosphere to it. And so that's what I really miss about the trade, the uh, camaraderie of it all, uh, people working hand in hand together. But then when you hear the presses running, you think, oh, look at that. It feels like the world's, world's all moving about and you've been part of that. You've been part of making that work. And someone somewhere is going to read what you've done. They won't know you've done it, but you've done it. You've been part of something bigger than yourself. Do you know what I mean? I mean, going to work at night was like going to a party every night. It was very enjoyable. And the comradeship was out of this world, all the comradeship. Comradeship in Fleet Street was uh, unbelievable. We used to have uh, competitions within the composing room where you used to balance a mallet on your finger and walk around the room with the mallet and the, the manager had come up and asked you to get on with some work and you'd tell him that you couldn't because you were in a competition to balance a mallet and things like that used to make you laugh and were part of some of the uh, remarkable days, if you like. Going back to any, any jokes that people played, I can remember when you were doing making up a page, when you weren't looking, someone would move something so you had make up the whole page to the wrong size and then at the end of it you'd have to start again it's a complete waste of time but things that people thought were funny weren't really funny they were just very annoying sometimes that feeling that you had you know 24 hours to make a newspaper you know and the the, the pressure i enjoyed sometimes it was quite hair raising sometimes you'd do something and a page would come up and you'd think, ah, oh, that really looks good. And the editor would take one look at it and say, that's rubbish, throw it in the bin. And you think, oh my, we have to start all over again. Uh, uh, there was always a sense of achievement when you'd finished it. In other words, it's like a carpenter who makes a chair or something like that. When it's done, he rubs his hands together and he feels quite proud. I know it sounds funny, but the same was true of a compositor. When the page is finished, you look at the proof and you think, I did that. Uh, you might be a little bit disappointed about various aspects of it, but generally, the positive aspect was you've done it and that was your page. No one else really had much of a hand in it. You constructed it. This is during Hotmail. You'd be down and there'd be, as I say, be a big long bench, which was the stone, and then you'd have all the type in like big long racks, which were called galleys. Um, and they would be slotted into it and they'd say, well, you messed that up, look, you've got it hanging out. Oh, God. And then you'd find another little bit, fill it in there, fill it in there, cut some headings back, things like that. And it was lovely. And all of a sudden, it was five o'clock and that was it. Right, we're done. Chum, gone. 
and it's fantastic. It was just completely lost in it. And uh, when you saw it on Sunday, when you bought the paper on Sunday, you go, oh, I did that. My mum used to go, oh, I'm very proud of you, son. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode 2 of Fleet Street Remembered. The interviews were collected by children from St Matthews and St George the Martyr Primary Schools as part of a project supported by St Bride Institute and the News International Dispute Archive. Archive audio courtesy of Andy Humphreys. In episode 3 we explore what Fleet Street was like and the importance of the union in the print industry. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and produced by Digital Works. To find out more about our oral history projects, films and podcasts, visit www.digital-works.co.uk where you can also view Banging Out, Fleet Street Remembered, the documentary film made as part of this project.